for me today, personally, being a Rome is being a part of community which should be at the lead of what society of tomorrow should be in terms of what diversity is, in terms of what acceptance of diversity is, in terms of how much I am uh, defined by myself and how much uh, I'm defined by the others, the way they look at me. Romatopia. Romat hai sintura čeren svato katerlendi utopia. Sarbišaja e Evropa tehara tevel. Hello, Lachu Divis, and welcome again to our next episode of the podcast Romatopia. Rama talk about their utopia for Europe. It is us again. My name is Isabel Rabe, and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bieler. And a big welcome to everyone also from my side. In this podcast, we are going to talk to Rama from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter images and counter narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we will be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. Let's welcome our today's guest, Saimir Mile. Good morning, Saimir. Hello, good morning. So, Saimir, we have a, a little game that we usually start off the, the interview with. And so we have someone who described you in one sentence, and uh, you have to guess who said this. So here we go. Yeah. He's a great linguist and one of the bravest activists I know. He never compromises the Romani issue. The Mecca Roma from Mizekeya are always brilliant in what they do thanks to Saimir. <laughs> <laughs> I am almost sure this is Saad, Saad Kazanjiu. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes. I guess he made it obvious. Yes, you guessed correctly. I guess, I don't know yeah, yeah. if we make this game too easy for everybody or not. <laughs> Until you pronounced the Musekeya, I was thinking about Jelko Jovanovic, but mm-hmm. with the Musekeya, I, I guessed because we are from the same region. Yes, I there see. you go. Well, it, it was uh, it was Sayad. Great. And Samir, when you should describe yourself in one sentence, um, how would you describe yourself? Hmm. Well, I am a, a man in the movement. Uh, yeah, a man in the movement, not so much in the in physical movement, especially these times, <laughs> but someone who 
who evolves and who yeah who goes on and tries to get every day a bit better than the day before. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah and and we were going to talk about the movement you're in um, later when we talk about your work. For that, our listeners get to know you a bit better. I'm going to read a short CV. Samia Mille is a Rom, originally from Albania, but living in France for well over 20 years. He studied in France and completed three master's degrees. First, master's in international law at Université Paris 1, La Sorbonne. Second, master's in EU construction at the Université du Paris 8. And third, master's professional action et solidarité internationale from the Institut Catholique de Paris. He's a linguist and expert in the Romani language, worked as an instructor in INALCO, the prestigious National Research Institute and Language School in Paris, under the guidance of Professor Marcel Courtiade and himself has extensive knowledge of Roma history. Along with his classmates, he founded the association La Voix des Roms in 2005. Within this association, he's now heading the legal department of a national syndicate of Roma civil society activists, which is called the Movement of May 16th, in honor of those who acted to stand up for themselves in 1944 in Auschwitz as a way to keep their memory alive and inspire others to action in their daily lives. In his roles within the association, he has also initiated academic research into the history of the uprising of Sinti and Roma, in addition to supporting resistance movements of allies, including Muslims, people of African descent and Asians, towards the recognition of universal human rights. Impressive biography, Samir. Does this sound correct? Or is there anything you want to add? Mm, well, it is quite correct. It's quite correct. I, I'm always amazed by the importance that takes my linguistic uh, background mm -hmm. as compared to the legal background. But this is because of the activists, of my friends, actually, who always uh, see this part which is not more important but less common among the Romani activists in Europe yeah the, yeah that might be the reason yeah I think I think that's exactly it it's it's uh, it's a rare thing so mm. it has to be noticed yeah, yeah yeah we are plethora of lawyers but not so many of us are linguists exactly, so <laughs> exactly. people focus on that part yeah <laughs> and we're gonna talk about um, you being linguist and about the Romani language later but let's first start to um Get a bit into your childhood. Um, we are interested in how you grew up. And here's my first question. What is your most vivid memory of your childhood? Oh, there are many of them. Uh, the time, the, the games that I played with my cousins, with my brother also, but also the school, the, the way that I, yeah, all, all those days of, of school, I wouldn't say that I was a very a hard worker in school, but it was fun. So and what were your favorite games? In those times, we used to to fabric ourselves, to, to make ourselves our games. I mean, uh, with uh, pieces of wood, of some plants, uh, stuff like this. We used to, to make some kind of uh, mobile 
things uh, which we pretended they were they were cars well, they were not cars of course but uh, with uh, some wood and some uh, some uh, steers and stuff we, we we played with them we were very creative in that mm-hmm. time actually because there were no there were no all made uh, games in in the market mm-hmm. uh, it was something very rare mm-hmm. It was, it was not a question of money. It was a question of disponibility, mm-hmm. availability. But there were no such things. Mm. We had to think a lot. Ah, so you've been using your imagination ever since. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's where it comes I from. So, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners, where did you grow up exactly? How, how was it? I grew up in the house I am now in because I came here for the uh, new year to my parents in Albania. Uh, it's a small town called Patos. It is an area in which there is oil and uh, yeah, there is uh, exploitation of oil here. My mother used to work in a state enterprise of uh, oil exploitation. My brother now works in such an enterprise, which is a private one. So here is where I grew up. It is a really small city, about 20 to 25,000 inhabitants. And in that time, it was even smaller, made of uh, different people coming from different areas of Albania. It is a new city, which was founded in 1946, mm-hmm. as they found that there was oil to, to be exploited here. Mm-hmm. So th- there is a lot of diversity, of ethnic diversity, I wouldn't say so, but yeah, regional diversity here. Mm-hmm. And we were just two, then three Romani families. And there are only two now. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us when you first discovered you were Roma? I know you told me a story once, but do you want to share that with us now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was here in this city. We were playing uh, outside in, uh, in the street. There were, it, it was not dangerous in that time because there, were, there was maybe one car uh, which uh, passed by uh, in, in a week. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> we were playing with friends here and some Romani people passed by and the children here had in that time some kind of mm, songs or, or, or slams uh, and about the about the, the gypsies that we called here Ariji and they went behind them singing those uh, songs which uh, in English will be uh, whether it rains or uh, where what or is a sunny day, the gypsies, uh, the radigis go around or something mm-hmm. like that. And I was singing the same <laughs> with, my, with my mates from my quarter, from my street. And my uh, older sister called me in and I came in and she said, you shouldn't do that. Said, Why? Uh, because you are one of them too. <laughs> and I was like, what are you speaking about? This is not true. It can't be true. So this is how I discovered who I was. And I was in that time, I don't know, maybe five or six. Okay. And and uh, how did you deal with this? What happens then? Did you discuss it with your parents or within the family? Or how did you feel? Not really. This was not... Uh, a subject of discussion, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, there was no discussion on it. But uh, when when cousins used to come here, for instance, or 
my aunts or my uncles, and in sometimes I heard uh, my father speaking with them in another language. I remember my great great aunt saying to me when I asked her what what what's that language, she said it is Greek. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so slowly. Well, of course, I, I realized that I was one of, member of that community. And uh, I don't know how to say that. We, we developed some kind of defensive tools mm-hmm. uh, because um, nothing was there to uh, comfort me, for, for instance, or my brother or my sisters in this identity which which we didn't really have. We didn't speak Romani at home. Mm-hmm. We didn't know much about tradition or stuff. We used to go for the holidays and meet with our families in the village uh, from which Sead comes. Mm-hmm. We, we come from the same village, and there there is a important community. But uh, this was not our daily life our daily identity. Mm-hmm. It was something that we were in, in, in little contact with. We knew about it, we knew about it, and we always had a, an attitude uh, which consists of saying, I am proud of being a, a gypsy, we used to say in that time, which is RG here in my region. Oh, and that's it. But without really being proud because we didn't have any any thing any concrete thing which uh, could make us proud yeah yeah interesting yeah uh, in slovakia i've i've heard people say like and and my mother it's uh, instead of calling it greek they say italian so it, it happens yeah. <laughs> it happens everywhere <laughs> but then then um how was it in school you were just one of two families did you experience any kind of discrimination in school or or maybe at university and no no really no but there was this uh, i mean usually i was comfortable uh, in in the in the normal conditions, normal life, it was okay. There were no issues with this, but sometimes this came out from others. And I remember that uh, one of my friends, for instance, told me in a discussion they had with other students of the high school. One girl said, "Well, what you know? Anyway, he he's a gypsy." Oh. Mm-hmm. And my friend told her, "You better shut up." your mouth because this is not your problem what he is he's my friend and he's a very good guy and that's it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he told me this afterwards but no it it was uh, it it was more of uh, when there were conflicts or where when the subject of ethnicity came I was not feeling comfortable. Uh, it's like uh, it doesn't come up. You you don't have to deal with it most of the time. But when it comes up once, it, all of a sudden it is uncomfortable. And you kind of, well, for me, I think it was similar. If it came up, it was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to react. And uh, yeah. because I'm not used to facing that daily kind of discrimination. So I was mm. kind of shocked and just watching for and trying to figure out what to do. And uh, always thinking about it afterwards. Actually... It is because of my social uh, class. Mm-hmm. 
I was and still am, my family is in between the middle and the upper class mm -hmm. of the society. So I didn't correspond and I still don't correspond to the to what people think of gypsies, mm -hmm. to, to what people think we are or we should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And this uh, this hiatus there, it, it's uh, this uh, discrepancy is uh, uh, causes this tension of you don't really know how to react to that, and people don't find it normal. Mm. Be that uh, in a racistic way or in, in another way, they cannot imagine. And this is how I have listened so many times people saying to me, "Oh, please, don't spoil it. Don't say that you are a, a, a gypsy." Yeah, it's often mixed up. This um, culture of poverty is seen as as Romani culture. Yeah, poverty and yeah, all, all the otherness. Yeah. Actually, it's not just the poverty, but dirtiness. Uh, I don't know. When did you come to France, uh, Simi, and how did you experience this time after your arrival in France? Well, in France, it was totally different because no one—I didn't know anyone, and no one knew me. Mm -hmm. So you came here. You came to France all alone. I came to France uh, as a student, mm -hmm. all alone. In any way, it was a new, totally new life, new language, new country. And did you like it? Uh, I liked it. And I liked it especially because I struggled hard for getting there. Mm -hmm. So it was in 96. And it was really difficult to get scholarship and a visa to, to, to go and to, to study. Mm -hmm. So when I got it, although the, the hardship, I was uh, very happy and also I was really motivated. So where, where do you feel at home now? I don't know, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. You don't know because you don't feel at home anywhere or because you feel at home everywhere? Until a few years ago, I felt home in France. Mm -hmm. Until two, three years ago. But I noticed now The last two years, when I come here, I don't know, maybe it's the age, the <laughs> nostalgia, and I, I, I feel home here too. So I feel home here, I feel home in France, and it happens to me to feel home in some places that I just discovered. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> well, that's a good feeling. Mm. Yeah, in Andalusia, for instance, I, I really felt home, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. although I was there for three, four days. Mm -hmm. Samuel, when did you become an activist? <sighs> I don't really know. I started here before leaving Albania. The civil society didn't exist in Albania until 1990. The system, the regime changed and the democracy started with the pluralism and so on. So this is the time when the first organizations, free organizations, started. And I was uh, very young at that time, I was 15, and I participated in some activities here, but I couldn't really say that I was an activist. I was uh, a teenager. I had some clue of what was happening with this community that happened to be mine, and which I wasn't really in. So I was there a bit, but the real activism, I can say that I started it in, in, in France, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. Since the 1999, let's say, 99, 2000. We're going to later talk about uh, the association you, you co-founded, La Voix de Rome. But before, another question. We're in the middle of a pandemic and you once said 
um, I quote, racism arises in times of crisis. The problems with minorities <coughs> reside from the sickness of the majority. What is the situation of Romani people in France at the moment? Actually, the main problem is the one of uh, who are the Romani people, mm -hmm. of identifying them. Mm -hmm. No one really knows, but everyone feels like he knows enough to speak about. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great yeah. answer. I <laughs> <laughs> so I can't give an answer because I know enough to know that I don't know. Yeah. The Romani people is so diverse. I mean, Bill and myself are Romani people in France, but no one, we don't enter in any, uh, no statistics because there is no such a thing, but in any empirical uh, overview or analysis. And we are not exceptions. This is the thing to be understood. Mm -hmm. Bill, myself, a lot of people that we know, we are not exceptions. Mm -hmm. So I cannot say how the pandemic was and what were the consequences on the Romani people there. Mm. This question, what is the situation of the Roma people in France? It's such a big and general question. I knew that when I saw this, like when we have our script here to, to ask you these questions, that this is like an impossible question. And I always, you know, I get that question and I don't know how to answer it, but I, we left it here on purpose for you so that you could do it. And I'm, <clears> I'm, I'm very happy at how you, you, <laughs> how you approached it because I always ask myself too, what, what, what do I say to that question? And so yeah. please continue. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that France is a model, bad or good or whatever, but it is a model. Maybe it is not, but it is for me because I know very good how the things, how the categorization is made there. And it is so complex that once you understand this, you can understand perfectly what happens in Hungary, between the Romani people and the Beash people, what happens in uh, Romania or in Bulgaria between the Romani people and the uh, Rudari people, what happens in Kosovo between the uh, Romani people, the Balkan Egyptians or Ashkali and Egyptian people. So, I never thought about it that way. I, I think that that's very true. I'm always surprised how you can put like a new spin, something creative on something that I also know, but you put a really unique uh, new point of view on it. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. It's like you, you look for the gypsies and you say the Roma. This is the general rule. You, you are in charge with a study about Romani people. And you look for the gypsies, unconsciously you look for the gypsy because all of us, including Romani people, have been educated in this way. All of us have an image of the gypsies. None of us has a clear idea of how the concept of gypsy and the concept of Roma is related. In which way? Mm. Yes. They are, mm. they are related. They are related, but they are not equal. They're not the same thing. And no one really says or really knows or really says in which way they are related because it is very complex and it depends on every regional context. Regional, not, not even state context. Mm. I mean, the, the situation is quite the same in Switzerland and in 
Savoie and in Auvergne in France. Yeah, we're in the middle of, of this really complicated and complex discussion of identity politics, aren't we? Like setting a group um, without trying, for, for political reasons also, without trying to define something like Romani culture, which doesn't exist. It's rather Romani cultures, the diversity and heterogeneity. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, we we are too much invested. I, I don't know your questions, but I know about the, the Romatopia as also this utopia about Europe. This is very important, actually, because Romani culture or Romani cultures. Mm. I think that there are Romani cultures, in plural, mm. which have all some common elements here and there between them. And the question of the diversity, when it comes to Romani people, the question of diversity is uh, put on the table as something that divides people, or at least is felt in this way by many Romani activists who are actually influenced by the uniformism of the mainstream. I think that sentence you just said is very complex, mm -hmm. and I think that we will have a chance to discuss that and analyze that further because the framework of the majority that makes it impossible to understand exactly. the diversity or the acceptance of the diversity, or we could, you know, we could look at anthropologists dividing us up into groups and saying, oh, well, this group in Italy calls themselves gypsies, so we should call them gypsies. And this group in this village in Romania calls themselves gypsies and they should be called gypsies. So they don't call themselves Roma, so they're not Roma. But that doesn't mean that we're divided. We can have differences and be, you know, have, have our, our local traditions or regional traditions, but that doesn't mean that there's no connection. And this, this absolute division or absolute one, one nation, one absolute, mm -hmm. or there's, there's something in between that exists. That's true. That isn't fully examined. <laughs> and and mm. uh, both are true. Both are true, but there's a paradox. Actually, let's remember what, uh, uh, what we learn in school from Einstein, nothing is absolute but the fact that everything is relative. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there is no absolute diversity. There is no absolute unity. Mm. And this is true for all minorities as it is true also for all majorities. This is something that from our historical, political experience in the Roman, in what we could call still Romani movement or Romani movements, because there have been many of them. I have learned this. And as it happened that I uh, also learned a bit of the history of uh, uh, France, because this was part of my, my academic background in law school, also a bit about other processes of nation building, we should be very in peace with this. Peoples are diverse. Of course, they unite and they organize politically, but this uniformity has never existed, does not exist, and will never exist. And France is a perfect example of that as well, as a model. Well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and, and there is nothing wrong with it. On the contrary, Once you accept the reality as it is, then you you live more happily with yourself and with the others. Mm. 
there is no reason that all the, those, you know, the discriminations, the fights against racism and so on. Very recently in our organization, we spoke about could the anti-racist, anti-gypsist fight, could the, the, the fight against anti-gypsism leave aside the identity questions. This is what we did for two or three years, focusing on anti-gypsism, 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 and still, we, we are still there. But more and more, we're feeling that we cannot leave aside the identity issues, not issues, but the identity analysis and, and, and uh, uh, addressing. Yeah. We have to address the identity and the identities if we want to be efficient in our fight against discrimination and in our fight for a real equality. That's the perfect link because we want to talk about the association you co-founded, La Voix des Roms, which means the voice of the Roma. And by the way, Bill, you're the president of this association uh, since 2016, right? Yes, that's correct. No secret though. <laughs> So on the website of La Voix des Roms, uh, it says the specificity of La Voix des Roms' approach consists in seeing racism not only a moral bad mood of the population, but above all and more deeply a historical set of institutional conceptions and practices. Samuel, you already talked about the focus of addressing anti-gypsyism and now also taking into consideration identity politics. Maybe you want to tell us a bit more about uh, the work of the association and your approach yeah when uh, when we founded the association in 2005 uh, I was younger and more naive than I am now <laughs> I, I still keep some naivety because it's good but uh, it is conscious now <laughs> so in that time actually um, the association was about spreading knowledge about who the Roma are mm -hmm. but with the years, And we, this was also because we thought in that time that spreading such information will make our community more acceptable in the eyes of the majority of institutions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, after a few years, we realized that this was not true, not at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2010, there has been a real crisis uh, after the Italy crisis in France uh, we had uh, a very tough policy decided uh, at the top uh, level of the state with the president of that time Nicolas Sarkozy the minister of interior the police attacked services and so on a very repressive policy against uh, Roma and travelers as they used to say and in that time started the policy of uh, eviction of illegal settlements of Roma and travelers there has been a political tension after this between France and the European Commission which led to some changes, also some policy changes at the European level. Mm. For instance, uh, the European uh, Romanist civil society had uh, advocated for years for having a European strategy for Roma inclusion. Yeah. And the European Commission, I, I, I still remember the vicious smile of one a European Commission uh, employee who said, stop dreaming about it. You'll never have such a thing. And this was a few months before EU frame for the integration of Romani uh, people in Europe was adopted. Mm. It was adopted because of the tension between Nicolas Sarkozy 
and the Commissioner on Human Rights. So, anyway, we had in, in, in 2010 this really hard repressive policy. And we started acting a bit differently, tackling the racism since then. More and more, we adopted a decolonial approach and putting also the accent on the empowerment of the people. Mm -hmm. And this is where we are now. We have participated also in reflection at the European level with Alliance Against Anti-Gypsism with other organizations, scholars, and so on. And we adopted a position of thinkers-players. Mm. Let's say that until 2014, 2015, uh, we were very active on the ground, uh, making protests, stuff uh, with, with people who were excluded, but... After this, we started to think more, we started to think actually deeply on what are the structural reasons of all these phenomena that we are fighting against. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the, the evolution of La Voix de Rome since, since the mm -hmm. beginning. And today we are on both sides, uh, reflection, developing the knowledge about the anti-gypsism and also keeping the link with the, uh, with the ground in, in a circular way. We feed the uh, the one with the other. Yeah, perhaps you could give us some examples um, of how of the activities of La Voix de Rome and describe what exactly um, the association is doing. Well, in terms of methodology, for instance, since a few years, everyone who is a bit interested on what the Romani organizations are doing in Europe uh, can see that there is more and more focus put on the resistance. Yeah. Uh, this is a concept that we uh, promoted. We started in 2010 with the first celebration of the uh, what we called in France the l'insurrection gitane, and which became then uh, the Romani Resistance Day, mm -hmm. which is the 16th of May. The day, the 16th of May, is used to commemorate the heroism and the courage of the Sinti and Romani people interned in the concentration camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau, who on the 16th of May 1944 resisted and fought the Nazis that intended to exterminate them. The need to commemorate the bravery and the actions of those who incited this uprising has been seized by many members of the community across Europe since 2012 as an important defining point in taking control of their own people's historical narrative. Rather than passively being referred to as the eternal victims, the event illustrates the power of the Romani peoples once a decision to act collectively is taken. It is also serving as a present-day call to action. Whether or not it took place on the 16th of May or another date is perceived less relevant than actually remembering what happened and acknowledging that they can decide for themselves what is important to them today, just as they did in the darkest hours of May 1944. In a publication of the West Germany Communist Party, we found an, uh, an article speaking about this act of resistance in the Zigeuner Familienlager mm -hmm. in, uh, in Birkenau. We found there, actually, that there was something interesting to address. No anymore the 
vague population, in, but to target specifically a subject and specific groups, saying that the memorial uh, activities are not there just for our pleasure or for uh, feeling a bit better or less uh, guilty or I don't know what. These activities are there for saying also to those who suffer discrimination, exclusion today, that their grandparents used to fight and that they should fight too. Mm -hmm. So this resistance idea started in Saint-Denis, where our organization is, in 2010, and now it is spread all over. Uh, then we, in, in my daily work, actually, as a lawyer in uh, La Voix de Rome, I see people who have different issues with uh, different institutions, for instance, or who are victims of violence. And we have this knowledge from the ground on how what different forms takes the phenomenon of anti-Gypsism, which feeds our reflection and our advocacy towards the uh, institutions. And in the same time, uh, this feeds our action with those who concretely suffer from discrimination when they are refused such or such right in a city hall or in uh, with the, the, the health uh, rights, access to, to health or to school or whatever. We know more and more how the normal mind is made also of anti-Gypsism, which place takes the anti-Gypsism in the mentality of the ordinary people so that we tackle it in, in the most efficient way. Mm -hmm. So this is this is the methodology. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe we could talk a little bit more about the 16th of May for our listeners who, which uh, is a mixed audience, Roma and non-Roma people listening to us. Um, maybe we could explain why the 16th of May is so important to the association as Roma Resistance Day, and why is that the central point? You know, the the focus for our activities as opposed to August 2nd. Well, the 16th of May is the day in which the prisoners of the Zigeuner Familienlager refused to get out when the uh, truck came there to pick them and to lead them to the gas chambers. So this is an act of resistance, and it is about empowerment. It is about empowerment, and people need this. People who suffer discrimination need to have some hope, not hope based on, I don't know what kind of dream, but hope based on examples. And this is an example in which people resisted in very, in extremely dire conditions. They fought for their lives. They were ready to fight physically with the best armed people in that time, which were the, the SS who were guarding the, the camp. So this gives force, and this gives force really concretely to young people today who start action to defend their rights. This is why, for us, the 16th of May is more important than the 2nd August, which is an official day of commemoration and so on. But uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't reach 
those who are in need, the most in need, actually, of being protected from the anti-Gypsyist speech or, or, or act. Um, on that day, you also uh, organize youth trips, so you take young people to Auschwitz-Birkenau. Um, what does the program look like and how, how do you prepare the young um, people for this journey? Well, this is also something new that we brought. Actually, it was the, at the beginning of the Ternipe initiative. Mm -hmm. Ternipe is a network of youth organizations in Europe. And when we started participating in this Dikenabistar event, we brought also this idea of the resistance, which immediately was received with a huge enthusiasm mm -hmm. by the organizers, by the other organizations, Yes, since then, actually, we, we prepare a group of uh, youngsters from France. We have two or three meetings, it depends, prior to the trip mm -hmm. to Poland. We uh, exchange with them. We tell them the story of the genocide, of how the uh, anti-Gypsyism took form, which forms it took in the 30s, 40s. And this is very important for the French youngsters who had no access, actually, very, very little access. There, there is kind of one or two sentences in, uh, in a school book mm. about this. So we tell them the story of the internment of uh, those people who were called nomads in that time, uh, acts of resistance in France, uh, those who were deported from the northern France to uh, death camps, the camps of internment in France uh, who were liberated only in June 46, meaning one year after the end of the war. And, of course, a preparation also to the, this trip to Poland uh, with this program, which is very rich uh, with uh, historians, uh, but also survivors of uh, that time, of the genocide who had been in the, the, the camps. And after they return, we try also to keep this, the, the contact and we see that they get inspiration, actually, and they start action in, in France. Once back, they start some actions for their small community or for the community in, in general. Mm -hmm. Good. And there are concrete examples like uh, William Acker, for instance, who is one of those uh, young people who were was in the last, uh, the last time in Poland. Well, you, you never come back from such a thing, the same yeah. person. You, 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 something changed in you, something changed in him. He was already quite sensitized, but when he saw afterwards uh, an explosion in France in which there has been a, a huge pollution and the Romani community, Jean du Voyage, who was living there, no, nothing was planned for them. He started a, a huge work of data collection on where are the uh, caravan sites in France how risky they are for the health. Mm -hmm. And uh, very soon, in a few weeks now, I think, he will publish a, a book about uh, this with all this data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to, to fill in on that, there there was an explosion. Uh, it was in northern France. It was an oil refinery or a chemical refinery. All the farmland around it was extremely polluted afterwards. All the crops had to be destroyed. They couldn't be used. The farmers had losses. And the stopping site for the Jean de Voyage are in this chemically infected area. Oh uh, so, so this is something that is very actual, very real, very present. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to William Acker's work on this as well. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, just moving on a bit, uh, Samir, you used the word genocide. And I know, uh, and you know, I know that uh, this is uh, a very accurate, very precise word. And you are also very accurate and precise with the language that you use as a linguist, as an activist, and you avoid the word Holocaust. And I would like to bring that up. And I would like to hear, I think our our listeners uh, could benefit from, from hearing your explanation why you prefer the word genocide and not the word Holocaust. It's important to you. It's important to me also. And it's, it's uh, good to explain this for our listeners, since we're talking about the 16th of May and 1944. I think uh, this is uh, a good point to, to bring that up. Yeah. Well, you have all heard about the, the professional deformation. <laughs> we're all deformed by our professions. As I happened to be also a language professor and a lawyer and an activist, I am deformed by all sides. <laughs> so I, I, this, is, this is why this is why I am very precise and I try to be the most precise possible. Actually, the word genocide was coined after the Second World War. It didn't exist before, so everyone knows this. And it is a legal concept precisely defined by an international convention on prevention of, of genocide. We know precisely what a genocide is. Now, the word Holocaust is first used in the Bible. And in the Judeo-Christian history, tradition, uh, and transmission of knowledge or of instinctive transmission, the Holocaust is the sacrifice by fire for God. Isaac was the survivor of the Holocaust. His father brought him to the mountain to burn him, and then he he heard that God talked to him, and we know the story that he didn't kill his son, and that God provided with a sheep for the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. This is what Holocaust is. This story is almost never said. I only heard it, not the story, but uh, this definition of the Holocaust, uh, I heard it only uh, by Mr. Polak, mm-hmm. who is a European member, a member of the European Parliament, who in a speech in the Council of Europe said, we paid the price of uh, having our rights respected because we went through a Holocaust. The Holocaust is the sacrifice. We paid that price of the sacrifice. Yeah, let me just interject. Mr. Pollock is a Roma member of the European Parliament, and he is referring yes. to Roma when he's speaking. But please continue. Yeah. Yes. So he is sincere enough to, he's sincere and, and clairvoyant. He, he sees clearly this and he says it. But most of the people don't. And most of the people think that Holocaust is a, a genocide, an upgraded genocide. Holocaust is something harder than genocide. Holocaust is recognition of Holocaust is being recognized as a real victim, while a victim of a genocide would be, in their mind, a low-cost victim. Mm. So first, it is about victimizations. There is no reason for victimization. Second, it is about inaccuracy, because a Holocaust, the word Holocaust, is purely ideological. It is not 
a legal term. It has no clear consistency, a clear definition. Holocaust has been used as such. And people think that Holocaust, being recognized victim of the Holocaust, is uh, something higher, while it is not. First and second, as we know that a Holocaust is a sacrifice to God, this is something awful, actually, but I will say it. When you say that uh, these people were was victim of a Holocaust, actually, you raise the Nazism to the level of, of God. You raise Hitler to the level of God. Because to whom were sacrificed the millions of people killed in the death camps or in the forests or what, wherever the, the Nazis sued them? They were not sacrificed to any divinity. They were sacrificed to the horrible regime that Germany had in that time. So I refuse it. Yeah. I refuse it and I use genocide because genocide is the the crime against humanity, which is precisely defined as the intention to eradicate a given population defined by the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I I would just like to add, I resisted this this argument because uh, as a native English speaker and as I know how the word Holocaust is used in the US and I know that it was, I I never imagined, and, and you use this argument 10 years ago, you said, this is a religious word, and we need to keep church and state separate. Uh, We need to keep this division clear. We don't want to create a hierarchy of victims. And I said, yeah, I think that that's generally understood. I think most people get it. It's not going to happen. I think you're a little bit paranoid, Samir. Maybe you're, maybe I was like, I'm an American, and you're a stubborn Francophile, and your your separation of church and state is different. And the, the, the French ideas of how to interpret words is very precise. But then this member of parliament said precisely what you said no one should ever say and it happened in the parliament of europe or in strasbourg or in brussels wherever it was this happened and ever since then i am now also 100 on your side because i i think we we cannot have this confusion there, there needs to be a precise separation and there cannot be a hierarchy mm. and uh Thank you for explaining that for our listeners and thank you for convincing me because while there is also the English, common English language usage of this word uh, might not take into consideration its original definition and how it's used. We have to remember that English is also used by people who don't speak it as their native language. Mm. And it is used by people who look up words in the dictionary and then they might use the original meaning and add the religious connotations in places where they should not be used at all. So mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much for this this explanation. Yeah, thank you, Saimir, for making this point. Um, I also often heard uh, critique from Romani people uh, to the term Holocaust, especially because it's so much related to the Jewish Holocaust, but I didn't know actually about this um, original meaning and about the connection to the Bible. So thank you for that. What about the terms Pochheimer and Samudari Pen? Well, the first question is why a special name for given genocide? Is that necessary? Mm. I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is necessary. A genocide is a genocide. Whether it targets the Tutsi in Africa or the Jews in Europe or the Zigoyner in Europe or whomever. So the, the word Samudari Pen Actually, it's a new word, it's a neologism, but it's a fake 
neologism because anyone who speaks uh, Romanes would understand it. Mm-hmm. Because it is it is coined with sa, which means om, mm-hmm. and mudaripen or murdaripen or mudarimos, which means killing. Actually, it is the killing of all. The all killing. The all killing, the general killing, the killing of all. It means nothing more, nothing less than genocide. This is when 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 I translate something uh, in in Romanes. What, if I have the word genocide there, including for the speaking about the, the genocide genocide of Armenians, for instance, I will use the the, the term samudaripen uh, because this is how we say in modern Romani, in elaborate Romani, the word genocide. Mm-hmm. Then the. Poraimos and its derivates are really a mistake. Actually, it is a bit like the word Holocaust. Mm. When I studied law, the history of law, and some of uh, the ancient uh, regimes, ancient laws, there was a proverb in Latin, error communis facit ius. The common mistake creates the rule. A mistake circulates and it becomes the rule. This is how the word Holocaust was imposed. Mm-hmm. This is also how the word Poraimos was uh, circulated uh, very much, but actually it is to be left aside. Poraimos in Romani has a, a sexual meaning, a sexual meaning, not connota- connotation only, uh, which has nothing to do with the, the, the suffering of Romani people during the Second World War. It means defloration. Mm-hmm. It it never meant devouring, as people some people uh, think. Never. It has n- never been used as such. Porado, for instance, is an insult, and it is also, if I uh, I have to make a link with the resistance, for instance, mm-hmm. some Romani people gave to the police a fake family name. Which was porado. Porado <laughs> means yeah. Porado means someone whose uh, orifices have been enlarged. Mm-hmm. This name is in in official documents of the time of the persecution of the forties, nineteen forties. People who are called Antoine Porado, and we know exactly that they haven't been called this way. This was the name they gave to the police as a, an ultimate. Uh, Act of resistance, and sometimes these names are also in monuments. For mm-hmm. Aimos, I don't use it. Uh, I use it for what it is, but it cannot be. It cannot be used for for uh, genocide, uh, whatever the the target. As in the same way as, as Holocaust cannot be, but Holocaust it, it's even worse because it it means that uh, the victims have been sacrificed to to yeah. God by the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Let's jump back to the activities of La Voix de Rome. I would like to know more about the boxing club you are running um, or you initiated, the Yakbari Boxing Club. What is it about? This is also one of the declinations of our resistance philosophy. It was after the trip in 2014 in Poland with a group of youngsters. We came back, and among us, we started, as among us, there was a former champion of uh, Chinese uh, boxing. He he was volunteering in our association, and he's still volunteering, although now he's a bit far. He, he proposed to start some boxing classes, and we started among us in the association. 
then he proposed the same thing for a project of for educative project with children living in uh, shanty towns in social hotels in a very difficult uh, situation mm -hmm. in the region mm -hmm. So this is how it started. We put the name Yagbari, which means the big fire, mm -hmm. and which uh, recalls the idea of warmth, of growth, of uh, resistance, uh, of energy. And this lasted for like six years with uh, children, uh, Romani children mostly, but not only. It was a project uh, who, which um, transmitted... Uh, values of the martial arts. Mm -hmm. It was an educative project through the practice of martial arts, but also other extrascolar activities like uh, screening movies, going to the cinema, mm -hmm. uh, museums, and so on. Mm -hmm. And it targeted, uh, let's say, about uh, 100 children in the whole duration. Wow. You know Oswald Marshall, the German Sinto boxer? Um, he's also running a boxing club, which has quite a, the same approach. They're doing training classes, but also helping the children with their homework and doing activities like going to the movies or whatever. Excellent. And this is, this is a resource, actually, mm -hmm. without falling into the trap of the culturalism. It is true that uh, boxing is uh, the sport in which uh, we have many Uh, Romani people yeah. practicing, and uh, and on the contrary of what people think at the first sight, boxing is not about violence. Boxing is about self control, about respect. So uh, I think that uh, here we have a real excellent resource of uh, <clears throat> of education. Yeah. yeah, and in Germany we also have the um, well the the icon of Rukeli Trollmann, the famous Sinto and professional boxer who was um, stripped of his championship title by the Nazis because he had this dancing on German boxing style. Yep. Mm. The German Sinto Johann Ruckeli Trollmann, born in 1907, was a successful professional boxer. When the Nazis came to power, they tried to end his career, which was not easy given his worldwide success. The Nazis took away his championship title on flimsy grounds. Trollmann's dancing boxing style was described as un-German. In July 1933, Ruckeli Trollmann entered the ring for his last professional fight in protest with bleached hair and white powdered skin. He stood at eye level in front of his opponent, without footwork, without deflecting blows. This was Trollmann's way of caricaturing the German fist fight that was to replace boxing in the future. And it was the end of his career. Labor camps and forced labor followed. Ruckeli Trollmann died in 1944 in a subcamp of the Neuengamme concentration camp. Even though book, film and theater projects have made his tragic fate better known, he has still not received the public recognition he deserves given his importance as a sportsman and as a tragic figure in contemporary history. Yep. He, his story has been told to all the children who passed by the Yagbari Boxing Club, and not only. He is one of the of the heroes that we always uh, uh, promote, saying the story how he resisted. Yeah. Bill, shall we ask our guest 
for uh, the virtual gift he brings us. Yeah, I think it's time for a little bit of a break after all these you know, <laughs> yes. tough, tough questions. Maybe we, we let's talk about the gift. Let's let's have some fun here. So, what do you bring us, Samir? <laughs> it is just a pen. Uh-huh. It is a normal pen, but it is written "La Voix de Rome" on it. <laughs> this is not to advertise about our organization. But I thought of it because it is about a pen is about writing. Mm-hmm. Is this a new pen? Is this part of the the current budget? Did we approve this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Samia! <yeah. laughs> and, and here, and here we recognize the chairman who is always there to control everything is correct. <laughs> so it is new. It's not something old. It's not something from 2015. From from like all the the stuff that we made for the festival. This was offered by the company who printed out the visit cards of Jonutz, who is the youngest and the newest uh, member of our team. Oh, great. the mediator of La Voix de Rome. All right. So, well, right. I, w- I want one yeah. of the pens. I want, when am I going to get it? <laughs> <laughs> so one pen well, for the president, please. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> we'll make it. Okay, <laughs> we'll make thank it. you. Oh. So, That's <laughs> nice. Thank you. <laughs> Actually, I, I choose this not because of the organization, but because of uh, something that I feel really indispensable. It is not about La Voix de Rome as our organization, but it is about the voice and the mind of uh, the Romani people in its diversity being leading the way that the pen will write a strategy of our community for itself. Hmm. Autonomous thinking and strategic thinking and acting. Yes, of course. There's never a simple answer. There's always symbolism and several layers of it when when we get an answer from Saimir. (laughs) (laughs) You said before that you didn't speak um, Ramanes in in your family. What does the language mean for you personally? Ah, For me, it it means a lot because I learned Ramanes when I was 17, 18. Uh, I started. And then, well, of course, I, I perfectioned, uh, I reached it uh, afterwards, uh, I studied it also. For me, it represents a passport. But I never thought of it, of it as such, actually. A passport is for going abroad and for being recognized. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Romani language is a passport for being recognized by your mate. And it is something that is valorizing. Mm. Uh, that's And of course, uh, as any other language, I, I will not enter into uh, exaggerated lyrism, but uh, the language is also uh, the, the vehicle of, of a culture, of a cosmovision, of, of everything. Mm. The language in which you think uh, shapes your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And vice versa. Yes. Yes. Symbolically, I will say that the language, Romani language, is a passport, but it is not like a Gajikano passport you go abroad with. It is like a passport you meet your brothers with. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Romani is, is spoken and written in different ways, different dialects. Do you have a specific opinion on developing a standard, standardized uh, Romani? Uh, you, you worked with Marcel Courtiad. Uh, does it matter if we have a standard? Do you have, can, do you have an opinion or be ready for a standard? Here, here is also one point in which our thinking is framed with uh, the mainstream frames. Yes. Yeah. 
languages have been standardized for nations which have been defined by a political power on a given territory. We don't have one political power, one uniformized political power, and we don't have any territory that would be ours and in which that political power would exert in our names the sovereignty of ours. So we cannot think in the same terms than Goethe, than uh, François Premier or whomever who, who unified languages of people who became nations and states. For me, the language is there. And it is a miracle that we, after one, after 1,000 years of departing from the original lands, and after 700 years of hard European history, really hard European history, our, the lives of our people have never been easy here in Europe, we still have our language alive. Not all of us speak it, but the language is still there. For me, this is a miracle. Hmm. If someone can explain it to me in scientific, uh, uh, normal uh, words and, and thinking, I, I, I take it. But I couldn't find any other example like this. Now, standardizing a language is making frames. This is not how we function. Unifying the diversity of our language, this is what we could and what we should do. Actually, our cousins in Spain don't speak Romanes because of the uh, repression that mm. have gone through. Mm. But they have some words. They have kept some words. Among the words that they kept, they kept one word which all of us who spoke from generation to generation, all of us lost that word. Oh, that word is for the trousers. Uh-huh. Oh, really? <clears throat> yeah. I thought you were going to say chorizo. <laughs> <laughs> no, chorizo, you can't call it, but chorizo. Okay, okay. <laughs> but the trousers, we say it always in a majority language, we borrow the word. Uh-huh. They kept the word choleva. Can you say it again? Choleva. 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 Okay. Yeah. Choleva, which, which stands for... Trousers. Mm-hmm. So our efforts should be not of standardizing or saying this is correct, this is not correct, we have to... No, our efforts should concentrate on gathering all we have in common, the most in common, and in circulating, circulating the common content of the language, the common vocabulary, circulating this vocabulary enough so that with the time, the inter comprehension, the understanding between different people from different places is easier and easier. It is already. It still is easy. Yeah, it's happening. It's happening. But what about just a, a standardized alphabet, at least? What do you think about that? This is also, and all what I said and all I, what I will say for the alphabet actually is in a decision of the fourth Congress of the International Romanian Union, who adopted an alphabet. Two alphabets were proposed back then, one based on the Latin alphabet and the other on the Cyrillic. Mm -hmm. Only the Latin was accepted, which I find a bit 
I regret this because many Romani people are have the, the Cyrillic as a reference, but well, yeah, yeah. This, this can change with the time. Uh, with a few adaptations for some sounds which have a, uh, a special behavior in Romani. And yeah, this is, uh, it is necessary to have a common code because actually the writing here is the alphabet is the most political question when it comes to linguistics, to linguistic policy. If a Czech speaks to a Macedonian, they will understand each other better than if they write to each other. Because the Macedonian use the Cyrillic alphabet and the Czech use the Latin one. But both are Slavic languages. Oh, you're speaking about Czechs and Macedonians, not Czech Roma and Macedonian Roma. No, 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 no. Okay. Not Roma. Okay. I, I'm okay. speaking about the okay. Czech language and Macedonian language, okay. or Bulgarian language. So, for political reasons, some people chose the Cyrillic, others chose the Latin. Actually, it was for the religious reasons yeah. at that time. Mm. The languages are closer in are closer in the ears than in the eyes. Yeah. Mm. So, for the Romani too, it, it has to be a political decision. We don't have this political power, as I said, uh, who will be legitimate or, or whatever. I don't know what happens currently in uh, Washington as we are recording this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. It's also about legitimacy. Yeah. So I have studied with uh, the uh, alphabet which was adopted in 1990 in Warsaw, in this fourth Congress of the International Romanian Union. I have chosen it and I use it because it fits to the phonological structure of Romani language, not because of the political authority, which is uh, something that can be subjective. Anyone can think what uh, they want about uh, International Romani Union now and at that time and whatever. But for this decision and the principles of unification in that time, and not standard, but unification of Romani language, was discussed in that Congress, and these are the principles that I apply. I can contribute with a little anecdote about trying to get Romanist texts proofread. Um, maybe you remember, Bill, when working on Rom Archive, the digital archive of the Roma, yep. which is published in, in German, English, and Romanist, um, as a customary texts have been translated by Romanist translators and then proofread by Romanist, by other Romanist um, translators once again, but the editors always completely rewrote the texts, even within the same dialect. So the, then uh, the authors again uh, resisted in turn uh, the editing. So actually at the end, there was no more proofreading and we just simply allowed them many different spellings um, in sense of diversity. So it, we, we made the experience ask three Romanist translators for a translation, you'd get four different answers at least. <laughs> <laughs> So this is this is about diversity of mm -hmm. the dialects, which is normal in all languages, but it is also about the powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to the writing, all of us, all of us Romani people, have a reference, which is the code of the, the, the alphabet of the language, of the majority language you have gone to school with. Mm. Yeah. Like you guys, like anyone, we are not we're, we're not coming from Mars or from uh, I don't know which uh, planet. 
so we have we have been in the same schools as everyone, and we have a reference of the writing for the majority language. And that correspondences that we have learned in the majority language, we use them also for our home language because we don't have been taught other correspondence for this other language. So it is very difficult for an Albanian, for instance, to write the sound H because the H does not exist in Albanian. It exists in German, but in German it is written in some way. And in Spanish, in which the sound is slightly different, it is written in another way. Everyone will write with the reference that uh, one has from the majority language. Mm -hmm. And this is a, this because we don't have any education, formal education on writing in our language. Mm. Talking about spelling, um, our listeners cannot see it, but uh, Rom in La Voix de Rome is written with two R. Why? Because in Romani language, there are two different sounds mm -hmm. of uh, R. We have a R, like uh, Rota, Ruv, uh, Guruv, and we have another which can be in my dialect we say Rom. Rom. Mm -hmm. others say Rom. others say Rom. so is it is this second R which is at the beginning of the name of our people Rom. we say Rom. Mm -hmm. ah, so it's for the Or pronunciation Rom. actually yeah mm -hmm. exactly new question new theme what does it mean for you personally to be a Roma This is, yes, a big general question. Sorry. Uh, but you know, I'm thinking of about a time that, you know, once you said, if there's ever going to be a definition of a, of a Roma, uh, then I'm going to call myself gypsy because I don't want to fit into the box that someone else defined. I don't know. Maybe that's, you, you can talk about something else. It doesn't have to be that. But what is your personal feeling about being Roma? What does it mean to you? Okay. As you said, it is much easier to say I am a gypsy because it's, it's, it's easy. And you can define the gypsy because you define it always according to the image of the gypsy in the particular society. You, it's not the same when you speak about uh, uh, Rome. As I said, I was, I don't know, six or seven when I discovered that I was a gypsy. And then I discovered hardly, very hardly, what was to be a Rome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why this? Because for being an activist, usually, not all, but usually the activists are people who have uh, had uh, good chances of having a good education, a good social uh, position, and they can get active. Okay? Mm -hmm. We don't fit with the gypsy. Mm -hmm. And we, we, we are not comfortable with the gypsy. The gypsy bothers us, disturbs us. But uh, uh, not everyone has the time or the conditions, the necessary conditions to discover what the Rome is. Mm. So for me, I've been clever enough to, to make one of the, my masters was about the identity and the identification of some minorities in Europe which are labeled as gypsies. I have never stopped thinking about this, actually, ever since. So I have passed a lot of time thinking about this, and I... Uh, For me today, personally, being a Rom is being a part of community which should be at the lead of what society of tomorrow should be. Hmm. In terms of 
what diversity is, in terms of what acceptance of diversity is, in terms of how much I am uh, defined by myself and how much uh, I'm defined by the others, the way they look at me. And how much how, how much I accept the diversity of others as well. Sorry, I'm interjecting. <laughs> okay. Exactly. How much I accept the uh, diversity of the others to how much I respect, how much uh, I tolerate, how much... All these questions, I am convinced our people have found the right answers to all those questions. Why I am convinced of, of that? Because, as I said, I could not explain otherwise the fact that our people still exist today as such. You cannot survive in a hostile environment, and this is what Europe has been for us and still is for 700 years. You cannot survive without finding the right equilibrium between all these questions. Mm. Who I am, who I should appear. How much I tolerate, how much I take, how much I leave, how much I abandon, how much I, uh, I am conservative, how much I... Uh, uh, all these questions have been answered by our people. Otherwise, I will not be here speaking with you today for, uh, about this subject. Yeah. Yeah, Bill, the, all our guests are emphasizing the resilience um, of Romani people, aren't they? Yeah, resilience and, and kind of uh, avant-garde, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. kind of uh, future, example for the future, or showing what is possible. Yeah. Resilience and ingenuity, I would say. Bill, do you agree? Do you feel the same? What means being Rama for you personally? Oh, well, I do agree with everything that Saimir just said. Uh, just like last week when you asked me, I agreed with everything that Nico said. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and you asked me this question and I remember I gave a short answer. Mm. And then 20 minutes later or the next day, I thought, oh, I didn't give a good enough answer because <laughs> uh, like Saimir just said now, I think about it all the time. Or yeah. let's say not all the time. Uh, very often I will think about this and, and what does this actually mean? and and how it has changed for me over time as well because yeah uh, like i said I, i think about it over time uh but not all the time because sometimes i feel like well i don't want to answer that question uh, it's like for me personally it's personal it's my business i don't need to explain to anybody i don't need to justify it i don't need to analyze it i just feel it and it feels mm -hmm. good most of the time <laughs> and sometimes it doesn't feel good but i think it's because i'm over analyzing or taking into considerations some kind of external assumptions about what it means and yeah, what it means to be in Roma, what it means to be gypsy, uh, what are these intersections or false intersections, you know, have come about over time. Mm -hmm. I do have something. I, I, I thought about this uh, because uh, I, I wanted to give a good answer also, uh, not just to be really, really quick. Because I used to think, having grown up in America, that it, it wasn't such a big deal, but it was special. So it was just like being Italian-American, Vietnamese-American, or some other additional label. I used to think that. It's just one that it's not as well known and needs a little bit more effort to understand. But every time I learn something new, you know, and I'm, I'm still learning 30 years after I discovered I was Roma, after my mother told me, after I learned things from my family, I'm still learning new things and I'm learning and, and, and my idea evolves over time. And, you know, it is, it is something personal, Uh, I agree with Samir. I think that we've survived and we, we have, when we learn to accept what exists and what is true, we can be happy and deal with the rest. So like there, it's not to be completely free and, and without any form. I mean, mm. things change and evolve over time, but there is an 
ancrage. Uh, you are anchored to something. And when you accept what the reality is, then you can deal with everything else in a much more healthy, happy way. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I see because oh, I could give lots of examples of different things that bother me or things that I've learned over time. You know, like the, we were talking about the gypsies that live in one village and they call themselves gypsies and they're separate from the gypsies in another country that only call themselves gypsies in another village, but they don't know about each other. So they don't call themselves Roma or what is Roma? Uh, uh, all of these questions of how, how anthropologists have divided us over time. Yeah. And the word gypsy itself, like, if you would ask me 10, 20 years ago as an American, uh, the same same label, I would say, oh, you shouldn't use the word gypsy. You should just use the word Roma. And it's just one is a bad word and one is a good word. Mm -hmm. Well, no, um, it's much more complex than that because you have the concept of the gypsy, as Samir said, the people who are perceived as gypsies. There is this mythological concept, this creation over time and these, these stereotypes that were developed, you know, uh, in the 19th century, uh, after centuries of anti-gypsyism. And then you see how much has that changed and been influenced by anti-gypsyism? How do we see ourselves as a result of images that were created by the majority? Uh, is that really our culture or not? And, this is this has taken me years and years and years of analysis and looking at it and thinking and reading and learning and I'm like I'm I'm fascinated by it but at the same time I resent that I have to put so much effort into it. Yeah, like, I see. You know, who 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 learns at school that they're American or they're French yeah, or they're yeah. German? I had to go through a lot of extra effort mm -hmm. and I'm doing this. It's, it's a rich culture, many different cultures uh, that have some common threads and some less common. And for me, it's, yeah, it, it depends what day you ask me if I like it or not. <laughs> so, but uh, overall, uh, I feel, yeah, I think that there is something that is worth learning and researching for the majority. And I, and I think that this, 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 sometimes these questions, anti-Gypsyism is a problem of the majority. It's not our problem yeah, to solve. Anti-Semitism isn't a problem for, for Jews to solve. It's a problem mm -hmm. for the majority. Mm -hmm. So I sometimes just think, well, I am who I am and I don't have to explain anything. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely understand. But I will ask you again and again because yeah, yes, of course, please. You always <laughs> no give problem. other other uh, answers, and it's always very interesting because it also reflects that it's about a feeling towards um, being being Rama. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. As a little warm up for the last um, last part of our conversation, we prepared another little game, Samir. We're going to read some terms to you, and you answer very spontaneously, uh, just with one word or a very short sentence. Okay, you're ready. Okay. Community. Togetherness. Vision. Nature. Life. Youth. Hope. Family. Warm. Home. <sighs> The same <laughs> warmth. <laughs> Yesterday. Lesson. Tomorrow. Sun. Hope. <laughs> I'm sorry, but... <laughs> uh, luxury. Language. Brain. Europe. Schizophrenia. <laughs> politics. Uh, politics. Uh, how to say? Femme maltraitée. Okay. <laughs> Dilino. Oh. Uh, fun. <laughs> Bachtalo. Mm, example. Gajo. 
<laughs> it is complicated. <laughs> okay. Anti-gypsyism. Cement. Cement. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's the cement of the, the of many European nations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great. Thank you. Thank you. That's the end of our little game. Dilno is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun. And in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. Book is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. Its Central European version, bacht, means luck or happiness. Bachtalo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting, Teoves bachtalo, may you be happy and lucky. Gorjo is the Anglo-Romani word for a non-Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning. Sami, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Optimism and pessimism are some things that I said it's a luxury, actually, <laughs> like hope also. I keep in the move. Mm -hmm. That's it. Do you think this current crisis or the situation we're in right now, could this be a starting point for change? Any crisis is a chance for a change. Mm. I'm not sure that this crisis will be the one that will push people to make the needed change. Mm. Do you think we, we talk about Roma as role models um, with all our guests? Um, so what the the answer the question is always what can the majority society learn from Roma communities? We heard a lot. Daniel Baker said um, that Roma are considered Bohemians as avant-garde, and that this majority society should admire them for their unconventional approaches, their resilience. Ethel Brooks was emphasizing family, solidarity, responsibility. Jeliko Jovanovic actually put it in a nutshell and said, we find a way out where everybody else just sees a dead end. What would you say could the majority societies learn from, from Roma communities? And I use the plural. <laughs> I invite really all the majority communities not to learn anything by us, about us, but to start learning from us about themselves. Mm -hmm. Because actually, the gypsy is what the majority societies have created as being the absolute other that they, the majority, should never become. And they should never be. This is what the majority should, the way that in which the majority should learn from us. It is not about uh, Bohemia or whatever, the freedom or whatever. All these things are actually often exaggerated. And always it is like the clown who makes people laugh, but uh, the clones are always very unhappy. Mm -hmm. So the majority has has its own interest. Actually, it is in own its own interest to learn from us what 
the majority is, what they are. And how much our image as gypsy make them comfortable. Mm. Because it is a, it is a fake uh, comfort also, very often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting answer. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. So, Sania, what is your utopia, your dream for Europe? Or do you have a special Romatopia for a local Roma community? Well, uh, well, when the majority will be aware enough about what is fake in its comfort, then the utopia can start. Because Europe is a construction, Europe as we think of it today, at least, huh? European Union and all this, this is a construction Uh, it has been put in place for the nation states not to make war anymore here because they they made two of them and they hmm, they were considerable mm-hmm. now europe can be also something else europe existed before european union uh, it will exist it exists after the, the united kingdom left mm-hmm. european union it will exist Even if others leave this uh, political construction, there was hope in the 90s for the Europe to become uh, really the home of all Europeans. It is not yet. And we are fighting also for the rights of the migrants, many of us, other continents, but actually Europe is not uh, enough home for those who are here for centuries. This is about uh, uh, politics, and as I said When you asked me what I think, what the word politics make me think, and I said, femme maltraitée. Yeah. Politics is the most noble, the most noble function that a human can have making politics. It has become the thing so corrupted, so Uh, Utopia, I'm sorry, I don't have a a big dream like uh, Martin Luther King had, (laughs) but uh, times are not the same. Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. For me, today, uh, things are going uh, so much in the the wrong direction that I think uh, a little stabilization already will be a good thing. Yeah, there you're right. Samia, we're going to close this conversation, this very interesting conversation, with one last game. Um, If you could ask one question on all radio, TV, and print media in Europe for one day, what would it be? What question would you ask? Okay. (laughs) Tough. (laughs) Really tough. Uh, Have you ever thought about what you can do for the world to change it for your life to be better hmm. good okay <laughs> thank you very much Samir <laughs> thank you so much thank it was very you. very very interesting I learned a lot thank you very much and I hope to see you soon thank you and see you soon have bye. a good day say say hello to Mirabella okay <laughs> bye thanks thanks bye 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 Romatopia is supported by the Federal Agency for Civic Education and the Council of Europe Roma and Travelers Team. Idea and concept, Isabel Rabe. 
Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Bila and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prizreni. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production Media Bricks Berlin 2020.